Well, hey there, and welcome to episode number 76 of Groove, the No Treble podcast, which you can always find at notreble.com. My name is Mitch Joel. Let's get on with the show. So who are you and what do you do? Hi, um, my name is George Paul Jr. I'm from New Orleans, Louisiana. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm a bass player and a you know, music lover. So I've been told by my friends that uh, this is a new instrument for you. You just picked it up recently, right? <laughs> <laughs> right, like almost 60 years ago, right? It's unbelievable. When I think back and get the pleasure to interview uh, just legendary players like yourself, I, I'm always curious, what was the instrument like back then, the electric bass? Well, <clears throat> the electric bass came into play probably about um, maybe about nine to ten years after, you know, my introduction into music by, you know, by way of piano um, and into uh, uh, acoustic guitar and um, well, I was studying classical guitar playing, and and pretty much as a classical guitarist, you learn how to play bass as well. So it was, you know, when the, when when the time came that I I needed to be a bass player, it was pretty easy for me to move over because I had already been considered, you know, knowledge had considerable working knowledge of a bass player, you know. But was the electric bass? really a part of the fabric of music back then or was there still that intermediate point where people were playing stand up and some had electrics and some didn't and what was it like well here in new orleans the um the upright never lost its um um its place in history uh, uh it's even today it's still um there's still young um electric players that you know that play um upright uh, on, on a regular basis you know there's there's certain gigs that um that you won't get to play unless you have an upright and um so there was there you know i was not i was very i didn't move into the upright direction at all so yeah so i never got to you know i play and i can play it but um i just um i never moved that direction what did you think of when you first saw your first electric bass? Do you remember when that was? Uh, oh yeah. Uh, well, uh, when I saw my first electric bass, I was intrigued, and, um, and and it was fretless, by the way. Wow. And uh, and and I, you know, I said, "Wow, that's that's a cool instrument," you know. And um, and uh, you know, I played on it. Was a guy named Poppy. His name, real name, was Benjamin Francis, and um, and I just, you know, I I was. I played on his instrument, you know, and, and, and say, this is cool. This is cool. And, <clears throat> you know, playing, hanging, hanging out with um, Herbert Wing and Papi uh, when I, when, you know, when I was in my early teens, um, you know, um, I got to play both guitar and bass, you know, so I, I, I um, you know, I had, I had a wonderful time, you know, at, at, at my teenage era, era of time. So when did you first meet Poppy? Uh, well, I first saw uh, um, Papi um, when I, I was um, I was like pretty close to ten. Now it's very late nine, and I was on my way to uh, 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 one of my guitar my Saturday guitar lessons, and um, and I changed the route of going to the bus stop to catch the bus to go to my guitar lesson, and I walked over a, a block. To Gravier Street, and then I was gonna made that left turn on Gravier Street to go to um, Galvis, where I caught the bus at the, at uh, Galvis. And when I made that corner, I heard guitar music, and um, so you know I started looking, and I looked over on these steps, and I saw this guy and his grandfather, and a younger guy and an older gentleman, which was, was Papi and his grandfather, and they were playing. But what I Papi was playing bass on a, on a, on another guitar, and uh, um, and his grandfather was playing guitar, but he was using the classical guitar formula. He was playing with all five fingers on his right hand, and uh, and and I said, "Wow, man, why is it my 
guitar teacher teaching me these, those kind of songs. <laughs> and, you know, the songs that Poppy and his grandfather was playing was, you know, was, was um, gospel-like songs and also, uh, um, you know, um, blues things, you know, uh, um, blues songs. And I said, man, I, my teacher was teaching me Home, Home on the Range and Ray River Valley. And, um and you know, I was reading all this stuff, and I was, I know, I learned how to read, and I, you know, and and stuff. So, I mean, I was. The deal was that I had to take these lessons in order to, you know, in order to keep the guitar, because it was a purchase. I what you call it, a lease purchase thing. So, if if I was, if the guitar was going to end up in a corner and not get played, my mom was going to take it back to the, you know, to the store and um, get her, you know, get her deposit. Well, get some of her deposit back. And that's your and, um, go no go ahead, Pop. Go ahead. I'm sorry, I missed that. And I said, keep going. I want to hear the rest of the story. Oh, and so um yeah, so I spotted Poppy and his grandfather playing and I said, uh, okay, this is so the next recital, which was in about three or four months later, uh the recital I was supposed to play Home Home on the Range. Uh, uh, as my my recital song, instead of playing "Home Home on a Ranch," I played um, "St. Louis Blues" or "St. Louis Woman," actually, <laughs> and um, <laughs> and um, that that angered my teacher, and um, I kind of got thrown out of his um, out of his out out of his group. It's <laughs> funny. So at that point, he, at that point, I, I you know uh, I I started you know just making my walks around the corner with my guitar to Papi and his grandfather, and I was I was sit across the street you know before you know before they kind of paid us looked up and said saw that I was over there across the street playing you know playing with them you know. And uh, and 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 uh, invited me, you know, to come over on, on the steps, you know, for the for the next few, you know, probably four to five years, you know, I would sit on my steps playing my guitar, and on the corner from my house, I was living on Padilla Street, on the corner from my house, um, going towards where Papi and his grandfather was, but on the same street on Padilla Street, there was a house on the corner where. Uh, all of, all of the, the local musicians that used to gather in it on Friday, Saturday nights when they weren't gigging, they would be in that house playing, you know. So I would I would go go down go down the street. I was too young to go in and hang out with these older guys. They were smoking, you know, smoking joints. Just smoking that my mama would call it that funny smelling stuff, <laughs> <laughs> and um, and drinking beers and stuff. And uh, and I would sit on the steps outside with my little guitar and just listening to what they're doing and playing along, you know, and that's, you know, that was my introduction to playing guitar, you know, playing blues stuff, you know. And you know, like I said, the, the, the playing bass was a natural uh, a natural involvement. What's that part of the city like these days? Have you been up there? Oh, that whole section of the, of the city is now a, a, a part of the uh, what they call University Hospital. Okay. They, they, that whole area got torn down probably mm, about fifteen years ago, I think. Yeah. And so, talk about your playing guitar. And by the way, you could tell the story of people who switch from guitar to bass. It, it's happened throughout history, but it's kind of a unique moment in time, George, when it happened to you. At least from my perspective, based off of where you lived. And the emerging genre, I guess we could say, of early days of funk. Can you talk a bit about when you switched to the bass and and what was happening in the music scene that made this move towards funk become so massive for for the world, but in particular in the area where you were living? Well, particularly in in, in that my neighborhood, you know, it wasn't there wasn't a concept of funk. At all, it was it was very much rhythm and blues and straight ahead blues and gospel music, you know, and, and um, the gospel music, um, uh, you know, was probably well, we call it. Um, uh, geez, I can't think of the name up all this time. It just, but it was like up tempo gospel stuff, you know, and uh, um, so you know, it was it wasn't like just a, you know the, the really bluesy kind of. Um, um, ballad and stuff, and where gospel music have gone today is pretty, pretty much in the neighborhood of R of what replaced what was used to be called R and B. Uh, um, so now, you know, now that's where gospel is nowadays. And, um, but um, for for me, it was uh, it was ninety ninety nine nine percent, you know, uh, R and B. You know, the Earl Kings, the uh, Fast Dominoes, 
the uh, Eddie Bowles and um, the Ernie Cato's. We know that Alan Toussaint was doing music for the Ernie Cato's and the Irma Thomas and, and those people. Those were the kind of the music that I I kind of um, how I absorbed uh, as a young player by the time I got to where I was sitting in with Walter Washington at a nightclub. And, you know, um, I, I was 16 and, um, you know, it was they were playing blues and jazz. And those the jazz things were, you know, mostly like 90% uh, blues changes, 12-bar blues songs that was just being swung, you know. Yeah, um, so that's, you know, that was, um, you know, that was pretty much what we did down here. But when did I you? Mean, but when did you realize that it wasn't just R and B or gospel? That it was becoming this new thing that we're calling funk. Did you well, ever I realize I, it? I I think what <clears throat> you know. I want to I want to blame it on Zigaboo. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, Zig Zig as a drummer, um, he just had a, a different opinion of. Of, of of how he played and and it had, and it was very related to uh, um to the street music that you know that that he heard as a as a kid as as well as myself uh, uh listening to uh, uh um second line bands uh uh second line uh groups and, and, and the neighborhood that we both lived in was uh, um you know there was a social pleasure club called uh the jolly bunch and they were they were older guys, and so <clears throat> probably twice, three times a month there was somebody dying, <laughs> and we would always get us a, a second line, you know. Oh, we'd always, so we, we know we saw that as kids, you know, all the time. Yeah. <clears throat> it's like you got to wait so, for someone to die for this music to change. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, well, to, to, to hear a certain type of music because you know at that point you know we weren't going out. You know, we we were still kids, so we weren't going out into the areas where uh, where the brass bands were performing as brass. You know, making what they were gigging. If they were, I don't even know where a brass band gig was at when I was a. You know, that was something I've I've, I've discovered. You know, as a as a, I thought these guys only played at funerals. <laughs> in other words, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> it's a, it's an amazing thing when I when I think about what it must be like to live through it, because you're young and doing your thing. And then when you look back 20, 30, 40 years later, you realize that it was the birth of something different. I, I agree. Yeah, it was, we had, you know, it was, it, I think it was the head of the growth because, you know, a, um, as a young player, once I once I got introduced to the to, to the nightclub scene, now I was playing songs I didn't even know that had names. You know, it was like like I was saying, sitting on the steps out front of that guy's, you know, that guy house where they, they used to do this jam session every Friday, Saturday, and Sunday night. Um, and the sad the Sunday Sunday night was really early, but Friday and Saturday would go into probably around midnight before you know before the local sheriff office would come and you know shut down the noise. Mm. But <clears throat> I was always called home by nine thirty. I need if I didn't at nine thirty if I wasn't at the house, you can hear my mom from down the street calling me to come home. So <laughs> you know, so I would I would have to go home. <clears throat> but I was hearing I was hearing music and playing and playing music that I didn't even know names for the songs. And I didn't even know who the artist was, you know, that the music they were playing. And it wasn't until uh, uh, I started um, when I met Herbert Wing and his band called the Royal Knights that Papi just happened to be the bass player in that band. And he remembered me and I remember him, you know, uh, um, you know, because I had moved up uptown into the Herbert Wings neighborhood, and I, like Papi, I bumped into Herbert Wing by walking uh, walking uh, around the corner, and heard this music coming from the house, and uh, and you know I kind of hung outside and listened to the play, and uh, they when they stopped playing, Papi came walking out the house, and I said, "Oh, hey, Papi," <laughs> and he said, "You know, he said he didn't remember me, you know, so he introduced me to Herbert Wing, and you know, and, and that's you know that was the." My that was my introduction to a band. Yeah, and then and it was the and and then you have a moment where you you meet another very remarkable individual who will go by the name of Art Neville. 
Yes. Well, at Art Neville's meeting <laughs> came through Herbert Wing. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, Art, uh, often, when he came, when Art in the early days, uh, Art didn't really have a band after after he had, um, left the, um, the band that um, recorded those tracks with him. Uh, um, I believe they were called the Shapaka Shawi, I believe. And um, and they had did um, all these things and some of that stuff. Um, you know, Art, Art really didn't play piano with those guys, although he could. He was he was the, he was just the, the stand the front singer. Uh, so Art wanted to um, wanted to play, start doing gigs. Um, he had he had hit records out, and and you know so their clubs would hire him, and he would bring a guitar player with him. To um, you know, to go on to play those gigs. Well, Herbert Wing was one of the guys who Art would call. Leo Nocentelli was one of the guys that um, that Art would call. And um, this particular night when he called, uh, I don't know who gets the call first, Leo or, or Wing, but um, this particular night, neither one of those guys could make the gig, and Herbert Wing sent me to play with Art uh, uh, on this gig. It was a club, a uh, bowling alley, actually. Uh, called the Mass Lounge, and um, and the, the the bandstand was up behind the bar, and um, and I played the gig. But again, remember, I'm a rhythm guitar player. I, you know, I don't play lead guitar, and um, so we playing the songs, and uh, and you know, because like I said, I, I knew all of the songs. But Art would keep turning to me to play solos, you know, and I say, I don't solo, man. I was, you know, I'm sorry, bro. I'm keep sorry. going. I, keep going. Yeah. Keep going. You know, <laughs> you play a solo. But I mean, at the time, Art was not a soloist either. He was he, he was an accompanist to his own vocals. And um, and so um, at the end of the night, you know, um, Art brought me home. He's been bringing me home. He just told me, he said, man, you're the worst guitar player I ever said. I was seen. It was like, it was probably a year and a half later when I got, when I saw Art for the, the next time I saw him. By then, I, I, now I'm a, I'm a, a, a bona fide bass player in a band with a, guy, a guitarist named Urban Bannister, who just recently passed away, by the way. Um, well, we didn't, you know, we didn't lose art all that long ago either. It's only been a no, couple of years. No, 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 uh, um, yeah, uh, uh, it's been a couple of years. It's been, it's been uh, oh yeah, twenty nineteen. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because uh, I can't, that's right. Because I, my, I lost my, I lost my wife before art passed away. Yeah. So, um, you know, it was like. Um, that's when Art saw me playing bass, and he 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 told me he said um, he said at the end of the night he told me he said now that's the instrument you need to be playing, and he said you um you want to play in and and you want to play in my band, and uh, I I said well you know it was a, it was a the thing was at that point I'm being asked by Art Noah to perform in his band was from the band that I was performing with at the time it was like I it was a step up you know. Um, so, um, but we was, I was still playing in a bar, but it wasn't like I was going to right. move into a, a concert thing. It was just that I was moving from a guitar player that played behind, uh, Danny White to playing bass behind the artist Art Neville. So, you know, so I was moved, I had moved up a little rank, you know, <laughs> And uh, and I told him I said absolutely you know and uh, uh, when I joined Art's band, that band consisted of at the time um, Leo Nosentelli was the guitar player, there was a saxophone player named Gary Brown, and uh, the drummer name was Glenn, and um, and it was because of a minor surgery that Glenn had to leave for two weeks, and uh, Art called um, Deacon Jones drummer. Um, um, to come play with play with us for that that that's those those four nights. It was playing like four nights a week at this club called the Nightcap. That drummer was Zigaboo, uh -huh. Joseph Modulus. And um when Glenn came back, you know, ten days later, he uh, you know, he came and he came to the club. It was a Sunday night. Uh, he came to the club and uh and the, the club owner told 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 us that Glenn stood by him next at the at the door listening to Zig play on his drums 
<laughs> and he say, hey, man, I don't think I'm going to get this gig back. Oh, man, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, that Monday morning, uh, uh, the uh, club owner called Orton told Orton that he needs to tell Zig he needs to go out and buy him a set of drums because Glenn can't pick up his drums and left. Uh, so that was that was the beginning of what is eventually, you know, a couple of years, two and a half, maybe almost three years later, becoming the band called The Meters. So why did it take that amount of time for it to become The Meters? Well, I think that if it wasn't for Alan Toussaint checking us out as a rhythm section um, at the nightcap, you know, he used to come to the nightcap, but he, he would come into the nightcap. Uh, uh, and, and hear us play. Um, and, you know, as as we were evolving, you know, he, he heard us as he's heard us evolving. Um, once uh, once we moved into the French Quarter uh, to the Ivanhoe, um, then this had to be like, you know, the, the early, late 67, early 68. Um, once we moved into the quarters, we were playing on Bourbon Street. Now we're playing six nights a week. You know, and on the weekends we would play. We would play until two, three o'clock in the morning. It was a couple of times we were actually down there until four o'clock in the morning, and uh, and we would stop just because we just couldn't play no longer. You know, we would just be tired. You know, <laughs> quit. But you know, we would we yeah, was just wore out. But the, the joint would be packed. There would be people throwing money in the tips. We made we made our tips made way more money than the, the club was paying us <laughs> to be be down there. And, uh, um, but you know, it was that, you know, we were just exhausted, you know, I said, man, it, it ain't about the money, man. It's just, that. it's just, oh, I got no more voice. <laughs> we need to quit. You know, how did you and, feel uh, when you first met art? It's, it's one thing. Then you start playing with someone like that. The sound has become so iconic. Did you know from day one that there was just something different here? Absolutely not. And I don't believe none of us knew that, uh, um, uh, not from the beginning. Uh, by the time we separated, uh, you know, by the t well, let's put it this way. For me, personally, the uh, first three albums uh, um, was, you know, was a, a more collaborated music and uh, a more uh, um, infused music from four different brains. Um, and from Cabbage Alley on, it was more of 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 songwriters in the band now bringing music, you know, completed music to the band to interpret. Oh. So for me, I thought the music changed from Cabbage Alley on, uh, um, and for and I don't I can't say for 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 bad or better or worse because I mean some of the, the most well known songs are. Or part of the stuff after Cabbage Alley, especially from Rejuvenation on. Yeah. But uh, um, but for me, there was a, a certain thing that happened that assisted that, uh, that very first album, um, The Meters, uh, Look a Pie Pie record, and the Strutton record. There was there was things that happened there musically, that you know latched on to you know the hip hop community. You know, thirty years later. Uh, the hip hop community was sampling our music for a reason, you know, because you know. But we had abandoned that that thought when we started, you know, started writing. When the songwriters started writing music that was supposed that was geared more to being commercial music, you know, more more more. Well, we want to be more like Earth, Wind, and Fire, or we want to be more like the Commodores, or more like you know, um, um, the Johnson Brothers, you know, stuff like that. When these, those songwriters started leaning towards that particular music style. So, what was, what was the moment for the Meters when it moved from the clubs to that next level of fame? What was that next level of fame, and when did that happen for the Meters? Well. Um, well, we we left the club dates in, uh, in New Orleans and and went on the road and and pretty much was still doing club dates. And I mean, the, we did the Apollo Theater and I think in um, it must have been 1970. Um, and I think we did like a a, a run of those uh, of those black theaters, the, the Regal, the um, the um, Capitol. Um, there was four of them that was like really uh, popular. I can't remember the fourth one. 
But that's the um, early days of, of the of the mass popularity of solar and be really coming into its own. That's correct. Yeah. That's absolutely correct. We um we were all a part of it. We you know, we played shows. We never played a show with Jans Brown, but we played with you know, we, we worked shows with everybody and their grandparents, you know, uh, um, you know, the the um um the the five what groups like the five stair steps were just coming out. Uh, um, you know the the Isley Brothers, uh, um, the, the MCs like Gorgeous George. Yeah, people don't remember and, that they weren't just concerts with an opening band. It was a full day entertainment uh, show. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, the Apollo, the Apollo was was you know it was like you might see five bands yeah. and an MC in between <laughs> each one of the artists. You know, yeah. uh, um, you know because the curtains were closed and they would change the stage. You know. And um, we were one of the, one of the first kind of groups to go in, and we had such this we had this gear, this large gear, and it was like we would set our gear up early in the evening, and then everybody was set up in front of us because usually where it was where it would where it would go is that uh, in between each you know you would have fifteen to twenty minutes to do a set change. Uh, uh, but our gear was just too big. You know, we had we had we had this big rider gear back the amps that that, uh, that Z, Leo Z, Leo uh, Art and, and and myself. We had these big rider amps, and um, you know that uh, we didn't have a B three at that time. We Art was playing a four feeser keyboard through a Leslie that was being powered through a big old you know eight by eight by ten uh, uh, box. That you know, they had a thousand watt head uh, on top of it. <laughs> it <was laughs> Whatever like, it takes. <laughs> it, was, it was the loudest instrument <laughs> ever, ever, and it was clean because there was, you know, that four fees. It was a digital, you know, it was a uh, was the first version of a digital piano. You know, and so it, it it didn't it didn't overdrive like like um, like you know like organ like a B three, but you know you can overdrive the preamp. The buzz, yeah. Yeah, so you, you got that grunge that you know that made B three is so famous. It's amazing but, uh, too when I think about just how time works. You're talking about this happening in in around the early seventies, and by seventy five, one of the things that becomes known in the meters lore is you opening up for the Rolling Stones. Yes. Yes. So how does that gig come to be? What is the feeling of the band in terms of taking on the gig? Can you also explain a little bit about what the Rolling Stones meant in culture at that time? Well, I don't really know what the cultural um, part of the Rolling Stones had to be, uh, had to do is that they were, they were very big in the United States and uh, uh, in the world. But it was it, it was a show that the Meters did in um, in the early seventies in um, in Europe, and uh, I think it was Prince Albert Hall. I believe it was. I believe it was called. It was. Yeah, I think the it UK. Was Prince Albert Hall in London. And uh, yeah, and um, and we uh, did a, a New Orleans. It was like a New Orleans night, and um, the the um, the it was the band was the house band was the Meters, and it was Earl King. Um, Alan Toussaint, Dr. John, Slooks Eaglin was supposed to be there, but the, at the, the morning that we flew at the airport, Slooks' wife just didn't like the air. Uh, 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 of you know, she I don't know, she it, it was something that she didn't like, and she just pulled Slooks off the tour. Wow, and uh, and it was like you know, it was a uh, uh, I think we were there like maybe two, three days and only played one night or something like that. But um, but the night after the, the after the performances, um, there was a meet and greet for the meters, uh, and we met all of the all of the British royalty of, of the musicians, you know, the bands, all of the bands from everybody from the Rolling Stones, the um, um, Poco, not Poco Harum, what it was, um, something Poco, um, like a Poco Harum is a band. I don't know. Was it, but were they a British band? I don't know. I'm trying to think now. But it was, was like um, Jeff Lynn there from Electric Light Orchestra? Was that happening? Or? Uh, I don't remember the Electric Light Orchestra. But the Beatles? I remember, uh, Close I, for I remember, guys. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. But, and I remember Ryan Woods uh, uh, as 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 a, uh, a bass player in a band called Faces. 
Yeah, for oh, sure. With a, sm- a small faces or little faces or yeah. something like that. Yeah, with with um, with Rod Stewart. Rod Stewart, those guys. I, re- I remember, I remember, I remember. But there was a couple of other bands. But yes, know, Procol Harum is from the UK, so it was probably yeah. them too. Yeah, that's what I remember. I, I always say that I, I kind of always was debated when I thought Procol Harum was from that. But I remember meeting those. We met those guys. <laughs> we met all, and they, you know, they, they, they you know, that's like. We were all sitting around, uh, and they, they, you know, they, everybody was brought in. The bands was brought in at different points. You know, each band would come through, and um, and we met, we met a uh, 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 um, then guitar player for the Stones. Was, was it Taylor, the second player, the last guy before oh, Ron Woods got that gig? Okay, I, I remember it was him. Uh, um, the bass player wasn't there, but it was Jagger. Uh, um, Keith Richards, the guitar player, and there was no keyboard player. It was just the three of those guys. And Ryan Woods was with, with, with Rod Stewart and those guys. And we met all these guys, you know, and and, and then McCartney and, and, and Linda uh, was the last two to come in. And it was, they wasn't the whole band. It was just, just uh, it was just the two of them. Wow. And um, so, um, you know, years later, uh, when Ryan Woods is now in the band of the Stones, and they were, we was doing, they had done, they were coming to the U.S. to do this thing. Ryan Woods told, gotten Keith Richards' ear and said, "Man, we should get the meters to open the U.S. part of these U.S. tours." And and that for the fact, the uh, tour opened in Baton Rouge. So that probably had a played a nice role in and 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 keep getting in Jagger's ear and say, man, we should get you know we should get the meters to open these southern dates. And and so I'm trying to think. It, so so was it Mick Taylor or Brian Jones? It must have been Mick Taylor who you met. Mick then. Taylor, I think it was Mick Taylor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I, yeah, because I I I kind of remember um in two instances where um those guys uh, we um. Ended up in the same place with those guys, um, and jam and jam sessions. <laughs> so Ronnie Wood says, "Come out on tour." What do you? Is it a no brainer to go out with the Rolling Stones? Or are you thinking, "Hey, we're this New Orleans funk thing. They've got this look and vibe. We we know historically now that how much the Stones had a passion for American music and soul music and funk music." What was the conversation with the band about whether or not the Meter should go and play with the Rolling Stones? Well, I don't think the band actually discussed it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you were just told go do know, this. <laughs> we were just told, "Hey, y'all, pack your bags. You're going. You're going out on tour with the Rolling Stones," and that was the end of it. Wow. Uh, uh, um, you know, and and well, you know, for for some of the guys, I wasn't a big fan of the Stones at all. So you know, for some of the guys, it, it was like, "Wow, yeah, well, this is gonna be cool." And I had I had this uh, reservations that the man. You know, we go we go get treated like dogs on this day because one, the local promoter that was promoting that show in Baton Rouge had already screwed the meters around on on a couple of other dates oh. that uh, um, that we play. Uh, uh, it was uh, Beaver Production, I believe, the name of the, the promoters of uh, the promoter the, the the promoter of that particular show, and they had already put you know put had an I had an, a, a not happy um, taste in my mouth about that promoter. And, and how we were going to get treated fairly. And also that the money we were being paid to do it, you know, um, um, from the tour was like mm, cheesy. It was cheesy money. Right, yeah. Uh, 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 so, you know, it was like our record company kind of like put in money to, uh, um, to you to know, sweeten the pot. To, yeah. yeah, to sweeten the pot. Or mostly to pay for our hotels and our travel and that kind of stuff, which... We did that Rolling Stones tour in '75, and a, and a, we rented a Winnebago, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. a, a Winnebago for the band and and our our, our um and road manager to travel in. Our crew, our three member crew, rode in the truck with our gear. Um, but what what gave me gave me a different uh, uh, an opinion and a, 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 of those guys were. We got to Baton Rouge, and like I was saying, we were going to get screwed around. You know, uh, our loading and stuff time went in, and, and we asked for our dressing room. Our dressing we was in this big arena in Baton Rouge, and our dressing room was the was the, the girls' shower, um, shower room. <laughs> yeah. 
on the opposite side of this arena. I mean, you know, it's like almost a block and a half walk. Yeah, you could have been in another outside. city at that point. Yeah, yeah, and to the to the stage, and you know, uh, so uh, what happened was that Keith. Ronnie and, and, and uh, or Ronnie started asking the question, where, where was the band? And uh, and 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 um, and somebody, I don't know if it was one of our guys or one of the production people, um, said, "Oh, we had a they're in a dressing room in the back back there." It wasn't even a dressing room; we had no catering, nothing, nothing. They were, we just they just threw us in a shower and said, "That this is your, this is where y'all gonna be at." And and um, so Mick Jagger. And Keith, and Keith Richards, the guy brought them back to where we were. And Jagger got really pissed about it. You know, he says, is this how y'all treat y'all, y'all royalty? You know, you know, and, and it was, and it was, it was talking, you know, talking to the, to the, uh, it was the promoter. Wow. It was the promoter and, a, and, and one of the production people. And he, and Jagger told him, is this how y'all treat your royalty? And I was all the way back in the shower you know, had the had the had the, the uh, water steam running because I was smoking a joint. I was really pissed. I was in the back and smoking a joint, and uh, and I, I saw these two guys walk in, and I kind of recognized uh, 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 Keith. I mean, I, I kind of recognized Mick Jagger. I didn't really know Keith from you know from from anything, but uh, um, you know, and I'm kind of looking, and you know, pretty much. I'm I'm standing. I'm not even coming from the back. I'm standing back there in the shower, smoking my drink, and and uh, Keith Richards and Mick Jagger walks all the way through the hall. They introduce, you know, everybody gets up and say hello to everybody, and they walked all the way back to where I was in the shower, and uh, you know, and 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 said, "Hey, man, we like to welcome you guys. You know, um, we gotta take y'all out of this shit. You know, please." <laughs> y'all, y'all, Y'all okay, this y'all local promoters, man. They they are really bad, and those guys never worked with that promoter again. Every time they wow. came to New Orleans, they went through another promoter. But they took us to the you know to the to a, a dressing room that they had a spare room, uh, um, and and they are uh, and they look, and <laughs> it was the funniest thing. So the closer we we walk in this long, you know, it's like a a, a, a oval a oval shaped building, and we walk in. And the closer we get to the compound that was the Stones' dressing room, we can hear we can hear you know bird sounds, you know, and and, and you know it sounds of like we were in a forest or something. And <laughs> when we got when we we got to a point where it was it was the lights, the lighting has different because they had different kind of lights up against the walls and things. And it was like an oasis. These guys, <laughs> like a spa. these guys had had, had an oasis set up. And it was like, wow, look at this, man. You know, this, and I'm saying to myself, I say, wow, is this how the other half lives? <laughs> <laughs> they're in a spa and you guys are in the was, dumpster. <laughs> yeah, we was, we was, we, we, we had just literally walked to an island in the middle of this, <laughs> yeah. in the middle of this big hole. Crazy. And, and those guys that treated us really well, you know, and I, I, I got, I gained a whole different kind of respect for those guys. You know, Keith Richards and myself got to be pretty good friends. Well, what and, were the, what were the audiences like? Did they take to the meters or was it a, a, a not a right fit? It wasn't as good of a fit, but I was told, I was told that, um, well, the 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 the, the uh, Baton Rouge audience was, you know, the Baton Rouge audience knew the meters, so we were kind of happy to be. You know, they were kind of happy to see us there, um, um, because I don't believe our name was even on the bill. Uh, um, you know, uh, um, man, someone gave me a poster recently from that from that show. What did I do with it? Oh, I need to go look for that. Probably worth something. Um, go find it, George. <laughs> uh, and but um, but the local writer, the the the, or the article that came out in the papers the next day was finally, the Rolling Stones got a band to open for them that would make them come out on stage and play. Wow. And um uh, and 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 you know that that um uh, that piece. Kind of rode, rode, rode with us through that whole tour. Yeah. Uh, well, we didn't play the whole tour, but I think we only did 
13 or 15, 13, I think we were out for 15 days. We did 13 shows. Wow. Um, and then, you know, we went back to what we was doing, you know, playing the, uh, you know, playing the club dates around, around the United States and stuff. Uh, even during that tour, we would, we would stop in small cities and play, uh, play, uh, you know, when we played, uh, um, I think when we played Dallas the next night, we played, you know, when the show played Dallas, the next night we would play. Uh, uh, we played Austin, Texas, uh, you know, and, and it was kind of like that around around the country. Because they usually, they were if we did a two night run in one place, um, the Stones at the time had two sets, two whole stages on tour. Wow. So they would have they would while they while they while while they playing on one, the other set is going to the next stop. Yeah, they were doing forwarding. Yeah, yeah. So there, there was always some time between between our set and their set, you know, our next set. So we would have a day to get to where we where 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 the, where the next gig was. So we would go play a gig in some little town somewhere, and then catch up with the tour. And then the band, um, the meters then break up. Nineteen seventy seven, a couple years after that. The band gets back together in 1989 and has been together in, in some way, shape, or form since then. What were those 10 years like in between the band breaking up? What were you thinking in terms of your career and what you wanted to accomplish? Um, you know, I'm pretty much doing that that period of time. I I probably, you know, I, I kind of lean closer to being uh, 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 very close on the edge of being a coke addict. Well, I probably was an addicted addicted person. I had an addicted personality for sure. I was snorting so much cocaine and drinking alcohol, but I was playing. I continuously played, but I was playing at that time uh, with a gentleman named uh, David Lasty, the the, 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 the the band called The Taste of New Orleans, and we was I was playing you know traditional New Orleans um, jazz. And uh, um, and mostly it was like ninety percent of the music that David's band played was New Orleans music, so the, the band was called A Taste of New Orleans, and that's what we played New Orleans music. So we played everything from Smiley Lewis and Fast Domino, Earl King, you know, Snooks Eaglin. Uh, you know, we played. We was playing nothing but New Orleans music. Um, um, so, uh, and I was snorting. You know, tons and tons of cocaine, um, and that's pretty much you know that's that's pretty much what I did for those te that ten those ten years. Just coke and, and base. I was I was thinking I thinking uh, I'm thinking it was two thousand through the year two thousand. Uh, um, we did a reunion and uh, and and two th and in nineteen nineteen eighty, uh, a Sanger Theater reunion. That um, was um, that ended up being disastrous, basically because the guys who and it was a um, it was a really good show. It was a well a well produced show, but the, um, the, the the you know it was so much drugs involved in the show that the film got kind of labeled a, a, a drug a drug performance, mm. and so nobody would touch it and. Um, uh, here recently, here recently, about maybe about three, four months ago, uh, one of the master reels of the uh, audio uh, uh, showed up. We still are trying to negotiate with the guy who found it uh, um, to get that back into our position because um, the meters own 51% of that performance. So we know the master is supposed to be supposed to be for us we have not seen the video uh we don't know where the video is of that and they recently the um the, the Foo fighters i believe they call Foo yeah fighters, sure yeah um uh, they had a, a, a hbo um sh a show on for uh, and they did a show in new orleans it's a great episode they, yeah they, they uh acquired footage from that that singer theater show that 1980 singer theater wow. show wow, wow, and um so but uh, the guy who had who had the footage, who was trying to uh, um, do the deal with HBO, that got stopped in the middle because uh, it was brought to the, um, um, Dave as, as as Dave. That's the the, um, the guitar player, the lead guy. In yeah, that Dave band. Dave Grohl. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, it was brought to Dave by Zigaboo that you know that guy didn't, doesn't have the rights to um, to license that music. You know, you know, he needs to come to us, the meters. We own that. We own fifty one percent of that stuff. And Zig was one of the, one of the few peoples that actually had the original contract from that show uh, um, that he sent to Dave and uh, Dave people and Dave and Ace Rio, you know, um, pulled. Um, you know, pulled the deal with that guy and 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 did the deal with the four of us. It was it was pretty cool. Yeah. So that um, that was uh, Foo Fighters. It was the Sonic Highways documentary. It was on HBO, and yes. New Orleans was the sixth episode. And this happened back in 2014. So six years ago, about six seven yeah. years ago. Yeah. Time flies though. Time flies. Time flies. Yeah. And it was, you know, and every now and then something like that would would raise you know would, would pop up and it would you know you say oh yeah. I, I'm bad on years these days. Yeah, it feels like a week, and then it's like six years. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so, um, so it was, and, and so after that, that 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 75 tour, you know, we just went back to what we were doing, and then, um, um, in '76, we got the call um, that the Rolling Stones wanted us to come to Europe and do the European tour. But we weren't just going to do a few dates. We ended up do, staying over there for 96 days. And uh, I think we paid 70 some odd shows with them on that tour. And there were other, uh, uh, there were, uh, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of spots. It was just the two of us. But there, there are some of the bigger cities. Um, there was, you know, they would have three or four bands. But we would always be the band that played in front of Stones. Yeah. And, I, and I always thought it was it had something to do with the fact that that write up from Baton Rouge said that the meters, the meters, finally the stones got a band that'll make them come out and play. Wow. I always I always believed that that had something to do with us getting to be the headliner, uh, not the headliner, the co-headliner on the Rolling Stars tour in 76. That was just a, yeah, yeah, they know what to do. <laughs> so let, let's time travel a little bit to the present day. And you've got... Uh, this band called Running Partners. It's been around for quite a while, actually. There was a new single that came out, Crying for Hope, and now there's uh, an, enough music for there to be a full album. I'm curious, George, why a full album? Why now? What do you, What type of music are you hoping the world gets to hear from you? Oh, Crying for Hope is... Um it's a, a set of music that was actually started. I started this with, with, with the Running Partners band a couple of years ago. Um, it was probably like four years ago, almost four years ago. And our then guitar player at the time, Brent Anderson, quit the band and uh, uh, um, and went on to. Um, he wanted to, be, you know, Brent Anderson. I have to say this: Brent Anderson is a wonderful musician, but he can cook. This guy. Is he is like one of the premier chefs uh, that I ever know. I mean, you know, he can cook, and um, he wanted to, he wanted to um, he wanted to um, he didn't want he wanted a food truck, and, and where he, where he can cook food and and play music, you know, <laughs> and, and play play the uh, blues because he's a blues guitar player. You know, he wants to, he wants he's from the Delta. He wanted to be a blues player. And I think that the direction Running Partners was going in at the time, and the music that we recorded with him, was had had definitely went too far away from where he wanted to be musically, and he quit the band. So when he quit the band, it was just for me. I just said, you know something, I'm just gonna take a time off from this and 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 let that go away, and I stopped fooling with the song. We we had recorded almost 24 songs. And I just put the 24 songs on the shelf and just left them on the drive, on the hard drive, and um, and didn't never never went back to them, and started actually started recording with the uh, the keyboard player and the drummer from that band, which was Terrence Houston and Michael Limler, and we started uh, I started calling calling ourselves the Porter Trio, and we just started recording as the Porter Trio. Well, the COVID came along. And 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 uh, I, I, while while we was all I was stuck at home, I just worked my way back up to the third floor where my studio is, and I started listening to music, you know, of you know stuff that I had been involved in, and I ran into those those running part of the tracks, and um, by now I have a new guitar player that started, you know, um, like late, um, well last year was 2000, so it was late 19. 
uh, when, when when Chris Atkins came in the band. And he was such a wonderful guitarist. You know, I, I'm listening to the stuff that that Brent did. I say, well, why I just replace all all of Brent stuff with Chris? And uh, and, and and we did. And it was you know at that point while while we had I had selected six or seven songs that we was gonna start with out of the 24. Given that I didn't want to give him too much stuff to start out with, and. And while I'm doing that, I started hearing other music, new music. The song Crying for Hope actually came from some new music that came to me while I was waiting on Chris to do his parts on the, on those old songs. And uh, and so I wrote, you know, six six more songs, six brand new songs. And and um, and we were doing this stuff in the uh, Pro Tools cloud, uh, um, cloud sessions where I would load the songs up to the cloud and Michael, the keyboardist, would um, you know, I share the uh, the song with Michael, and me and him would collaborate and get all the all the pieces and the parts in the right places and stuff. And once I once we agree that uh, okay, it's it's a, this is a good bed for the song, then uh, we would share that song with Chris. And, and Chris is at home in his studio, and he would download it, and uh, and he would put on his guitar parts, and then, and we used to, we, it was funny, but we used to um, do FaceTime. I had uh, my old iPad set up in the studio as, as FaceTime, and we would FaceTime so we can see each other, we can talk to each other while we while we working, <laughs> and, and we we did the record, you know, and uh, um, it's been um, probably, um, you know. It probably took maybe a little longer to do the record that way, but it, I mean, you know, we well, we had nowhere else to go, so <laughs> so we just took the time and we recorded this record, and uh, so it ended up uh, twelve songs. I did. I think we had fourteen total, and I broke it down to twelve. And um and the um the I think the bad parts of this of the music is that um or what's trying to be said is that um that it, we kind of cross pathing with you know some R and B um uh, um some um some kind of um not jazz fusion but a little rock fusion maybe maybe some rock fusion I, <laughs> one of the things I've always done with run, with running part and so it's like I never you know, keyhole musicians into, into anything. I always like to encourage guys to stretch, you know, and a live, a live running part of uh, 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 music, a gig is never what you hear it on the record. I mean, it's the, the song, it's the song you heard on song for the record, but what you hear live is, a, 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 you know, a well stretched out songs, you know, so that, that, that five-minute piece of song may now be, you know, eight, nine minutes long because, the you know, it's it's just taken to the, another level of, of stretching, you know. Is that one so of the, is that one of the elements that you think uh, made you attractive to? I mean, I'm going to call it the, the the camp of the Grateful Dead, but you wound up having this association with members of the Grateful Dead and, and doing some interesting stuff there. Do you think that's part of what they saw? Is just as a musician over the years, how you could take pieces and expand them and make them go? I, I think so. I, I think that um, Steve Kimmock was my introduction into uh, into the Grateful Dead camp. And and, 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 and my introduction to Steve Kimmock was with uh, a, a, a trio that I played in before. Uh, um, was that when after when Art Neville became, became ill and he couldn't play, uh, uh, Russell Baptiste, Brian Stokes, and myself, we started a group called Porter Baptiste Stokes. And and so several, on several occasions, we would we would bring in, you know, if we go into a certain neighborhood of the country, uh, uh, we would get, uh, we've had Paige McConnell come in and, and play with us, uh, and, and, and as well as Steve Kimmock a few times. And so Steve, uh, um, Steve uh, was doing this Mickey Hart tour and um, Mickey was trying to, you know, one's finding, man, we need a bass player, man, you know, because uh, I believe that um, the guy, the fish guy, was was unavailable. Okay. And also, also Reed uh, Reed Matthews Mathis was unavailable. 
So, um, and I think those was, you know, those were the, probably the two to, to go calls. You know, the first calls made would be to one of those two guys, or even even uh, even Big Dave. You know, from a widespread panic. Um. So uh, those all all three of those telephones were busy. Uh, um. So um. Steve Kemock said, "Man, you need to call George Porter. You know, I think I think I think you'll be pleased with the way, you know. And I, true to the matter is, I didn't have a I didn't have a clue about much dead songs, you know, music at all. So I was I went into I went into the camp, um, you know, you know, uh, a virgin <laughs> for the most part. And um, but um, you know, I have a I have a wonderful set of ears." Um, I, 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 you know, I did my homework. We have rehearsal. We, I think we rehearsed for two or three days or something like that before we started the tour. And then on that Mickey Hart tour, Mickey would almost, we would, he insisted that we would actually rehearse the gig before we played the gig. So at Soundcheck, we would play, we would play the whole gig, uh, you know, so, um, so it was, it was like, um, not as 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 um well, how you would say not as fun because you know when you get to playing the same songs you know and and not adding any more songs it kind of you know you kind of got bored uh, mm-hmm. um with where where we go but the jams the jams the jams in the dead world were always kind of uh, kind of good I, I loved when Steve when Steve Kimock took took those jams um. The next, the next, the next installment of Grateful Dead to me was brought to me through um, Papa Molly, um, who leaned over to me one night on the stage in New Orleans at Tipitina's and told me, "Say, hey man, you wanna, uh, you wanna come play some digs with uh, um, uh, um, myself and, and Billy Kirschman?" I said, "Billy who?" And he <laughs> said, "You know, Billy Kirschman. He's a he's a uh, other drummer for the Grateful Dead." And uh, I say. I say, well, why don't you call me tomorrow and we talk about it when I'm when I'm not on stage trying to hold down a gig. <laughs> <laughs> so he called me the next day and gave me some information. It was just a weekend, and once again, I they had just recorded a record, and they recorded that record with uh, what Reed Mathis was the bass player on that band called Seven Walkers, and um, and and so, but Reed couldn't make the gig. Uh, because you know he had he had his his um, group was working, so um, so Malcolm asked me to um, to you know to come out and play those gigs with with them out in California, and I, I think it was four four dates or something like that, and I, I went out and did those four dates with them, and um, and Billy said, man, I like this guy, man, I like this guy, huh. and um, and Billy Kirschman really liked. Way the way my approach to to playing those dead songs, Mickey loves what I did, but wasn't. Uh, oh, I should say he Mickey liked what I did, didn't <laughs> love what I did because I played more pockets rather than you know bunches of notes. Yeah, yeah. and um, and uh, but Billy liked the fact that I played pockets. You know, he 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 was he was he was enjoying that. So me and Billy got along really well. Well, George, I can't thank you enough for your time, and I hope that we'll get a chance to do this again because I feel like there's more stories to tell in relation to the work you did with people like John Schofield and David Byrne and Tori Amos, and the list goes on and on because you've had an incredible and well-deserved career with all of your success. George, can you let people know where they can best connect you, find out more about running partners and all that stuff? Well, um, I want to say Facebook, I think, (laughs) <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not the I'm not the media guy. All right, okay. Well, uh, go, go on uh, Facebook. I yeah. think fa- Facebook for sure. There, there, I have a website, georgepooterjr.com. Yeah. Uh, and I believe they they try and keep it up as best they can. <laughs> um, uh, as you know, as as much as the information that I you know that I I sometimes hesitate to um, send over to the guys who's doing it. And they find out about it through third party. You know? <laughs> they, they go on Facebook and see, oh, you did that? Why you didn't tell us about it? <laughs> George is busy making music, which is all that matters in the world. <laughs> and uh, so, yes, those are those are, my, those are probably the two uh, um, things. And I also wanted to mention that the uh, music that's on this on this, on, on the running part of this um, uh, uh, project, 
I don't know if they call it a CD or a vinyl. I mean, it's going to be on both platforms. That's great. Um, but um, the, the there's the lyrics, the lyric writers for uh, for those for that for those um, those songs. Because I'm a horrible lyric writer. I have ideas, and then I, I send my ideas to uh, to these three young ladies. Uh, um, one one is uh, Mia Borders, who is also a wonderful New Orleans uh, um, artist in her own right. Um, she's a wonderful lyricist, and uh, and she she tends to write how I feel. And then there's another one who's a superstar. I call her Little Princess, but uh, um, her name is Susan Kelso from the Kelso family. Uh, um, you know, she she's a resident of New Orleans, and uh, she's also uh, one of the ladies I use as a lyricist. And then there's uh, a lady that's been using for uh, for years and years. She's wrote uh, a lot of the lyrics on probably my last two records, uh, Miss Leslie Smith. And my my um, my girlfriend, uh, Miss Denise Sullivan, who has actually been the person who turns my words into English. That's what she, <laughs> that's what she, <laughs> she, she looks at stuff that I write down and she said, okay, so now in English, it looks like this. That's amazing. <laughs> George, thank you so much for your time. Uh, Thank you, Mitch, for calling, man. Reaching out for it. And I, I, like I said earlier, man, I said, bro, you have an impressive career of your own self. Man. I, was, I was impressed by your Wikipedia plan. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, George. Thank you. Mm.